Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report, as well as finance presenter on ABC News and a columnist for the New Daily. And I'm Stephen Main, contributor at Eureka Report, founder of Crikey, shareholder, activist and City of Manningham councillor. And we are The Money Cafe. Uh, now, Stephen, we're starting a bit late today, um, basically lunchtime, it's a bit noisier, the restaurant's noisier, we couldn't get our unusual seat. Why are we starting late? Have you been in an annual meeting? Yes, we had the Centre Group AGM, which uh, started at 10 o'clock, um, and it was a hybrid AGM, so Centre Group owns the 42 Westfields in um, uh, Australia and New Zealand, worth $36 billion. So they had a hybrid meeting. So it was physically at the Wesley Centre in Pitt Street, Sydney, and the chairman opened by complaining that there was only 12 shareholders in the room. And then they had the hybrid element, and he initially complained that there was only one person asking questions online, and that was me. Anyway, so... Um, and how many questions did you lodge? Well, I got 14 in there, and he still wrapped up the meeting in an hour, and he was still complaining all the way through about too many questions. Oh, even more, Stephen. Oh, you're pushing the envelope, Stephen. So... Where are the shareholders? This is a big, massive company, and why aren't the chairman being more accepting? This is two days in a row. I've had the chairman reading out the written questions themselves. So we had this Spanish guy, Juan Santamartino, yesterday at CIMIC reading out my questions in his sort of broken Spanish accent. And then at Centre Group, the chairman was sort of ad-libbing and editing and not reading them out in full, paraphrasing. Just let the investor relations or the media boss read out the question in full and give a proper answer. But look, we've still got a few issues up, which was quite good. So Catherine Brenner, the ex-AMP chair, suffered an 18% protest vote, but she is now successfully off the naughty chair and back in the ASX 100 Directors Club. Um, he claimed they have a great relationship with Solly Lou, who's always complaining about paying too much rent. And I mentioned Jerry Harvey. I said, why does Jerry you Harvey... About, you asked about his relationship with Solly Lou, did you? I did. And then I said, what about Jerry Harvey? Um, because he refuses to go into Westfield centres. And they said, no, he's in five of our 42 Westfield centres. And I said, well, put it in the KPIs for the new CEO, Eric Rusino, to get Jerry into the fold. Because remember, Jerry rang me up once and said, JB Hi-Fi will go broke because they can't afford to pay the rent at Westfield. I refuse to go to Westfield. And of course, JB Hi-Fi shares have gone from $1 to $50 or whatever. So Jerry was wrong about that. But Jerry <laughs> does pretty well buying his own sites and building his own centres and trying to live without having to deal with, uh, with Westfield. My other fun question was Eric Rusino, who's the new CEO, uh, he's the son-in-law of Frank Lowy. So I said, did you consult the Lowys beforehand and are there any other Lowys on the red, on, on the payroll still? And they said, no, we didn't consult the Lowys and there are no other Lowys of any description on the centre group payroll except for the new CEO, who's the son-in-law Which of Frank. Which is not nepotism. Well, we didn't... You were clearly no, implying he, such. No, no, no. I said that there's no problem with this because they are legends of retail. Um, I also asked whether they could change the name back to Westfield Australia because Centre Group is a bizarre name for a, a business which runs 42 Westfield shopping centres. And what was the answer to that? I said, no. Peter Allen, who's retiring the CEO after eight years, said, no, uh, we've got a commercial deal with Redamco, which bought the international business and they own the name. And by the way, I'm happy we've built up the centre name over eight years and it's, it's a good brand now. So I think I should put up a shareholder resolution to change the name and put it to the vote because it's still confusing when you explain, I went to the centre group AGM, yeah, that's Westfield. I mean, just call the damn thing Westfield, for goodness sake. Well, yeah, but maybe they're not allowed to. Well, try and negotiate to buy the rights back. I mean, Redamco doesn't have any assets in Australia and New Zealand, so... They could pay him five million and get the name back. 
Anyway, but no, it was a good meeting, and uh, there'll be another 15 this mini season coming up, ranging from AMP, Woodside, Santos. So just warming up, and uh, had a good, <laughs> good couple of hit outs <laughs> these last two days. <laughs> and speaking of hit outs, what about the um, the star the star entertainment uh, uh, imbroglio and uh, John O'Neill gets a pay rise. What's going on? And, well, and I'm not so much even the pay rise, but how, how does Star and Crown keep their licences? Well, they keep their licences because you can't pack up a casino and, and send it offshore or send, it to, send the casino to prison. Yeah, but just because they lose their licence doesn't mean the casino is going to have to stop. Well they, can be, well, they can be forced to sell their licence, is what you're saying they should be made to do. And that's what Crown effectively is doing, where there'll well, be if, a vote in three weeks where they're going to sell it to Blackstone. It, so, No, no but, but if the government said remove the licence of either Crown or Star or both, couldn't the, couldn't the government then say, well, we're now going to put the, put the licence up, uh, for, give the licence to someone else for the same casino? It is the same casino, but they can't afford to lose the revenue and our regulators are pathetically weak and they'll never do that, no matter how much atrocities they're exposed for doing. But they will sack all the board and all the senior executives and that's what's about to happen at um, at Star. But ridiculously, the chairman's had a pay rise from 484000 to $2 million a year having sacked the CEO, which is a repeat of what happened at Crown, where Helen Coonan went from 700000 a year to $2.5 million a year after she gave the bullet to Ken Barton. The CEO. So but this seems to be the tradition: is you fire the CEO, take a short-term pay rise, and then do the walk of shame and bail out yourself before the next AGM when the shareholders get to vote you off. So these casino chairs have got no shame, in my view. Well, I suppose the fact that they have become the chair of a casino is evidence of that to begin with. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> you can never doubt the gambling industry. I mean, you know, Mollus or MA Financial owns Red Cape Hotels and uh, they're the only company with an AGM in the next six weeks which is doing a physical AGM with no webcast. So I can't go along and ask any awkward questions online. So whenever the gaming industry is involved, there's always something dodgy. Like Aristocrat has still not put the webcast of their AGM on their website. So I still don't know what happened when I lodged 16 questions and then had to go to the pub or something. So I couldn't watch the AGM. I think I had to come and talk to you. Still don't know what happened because they're hiding it from the public. Gambling industry, dodgy governance everywhere you look. Um, what do you think of Elon Musk buying 9.2% of Twitter and going on the board? Well, I think it's a smart move by Twitter to put him on the board because under US corporate law, he now can't buy more than 15% as, as a director. Um, and I also think he'll ha- there'll be a good behaviour bond element because you can't bag your own board, etc. And directors can't get involved in um, censorship or banning people, which is what has motivated him because he's a libertarian who thinks that Twitter is uh, suppressing free speech or something. So, look, I don't like the way these oligarchs throw their weight around. I didn't like when Gina Reinhart bought into Channel 10 and Fairfax after Rudd's super profits tax proposal, which politicised the generation of miners. And I don't like the way this bloke worth $270 billion is now trying to bully and intimidate Twitter. Um, but having bought 9%, he's a legitimate stakeholder. If he's going to come on the board, then maybe he'll shut up and try and help the business and the share price has certainly popped. So well, He said he's got a lot of ideas how he's going to change Twitter. Um, well, and we are both users of Twitter. It'll be interesting to see what he does. Yeah. Look, and he is the most successful entrepreneur, arguably, of the last 20 or 30 years. So if he buys into your stock and comes on your board, it's probably a good thing. But just hope he doesn't smoke pot and 
do other crazy things when he's in there because he's a bit of an unhinged rich bloke. Scary oligarch, I think uh, you might call him if he, he was in Russia. pot, can you believe it? On radio, doing live podcasts. I, I mean, know. you know, he's a pretty quirky guy. Very quirky guy. Now, what about house prices? You've, you've, you've been frightening the market, everyone recently, talking about how our ridiculous prices are, house prices are world's worst in terms of a bubble, and then you've tried to claim that we should put our taxes up to 43% of GDP, like in Scandinavia, because that'll make us happy. Now, surely record house prices are making us happy, and we don't need to put uh, taxes up, Alan. I know. Someone tweeted, uh, Alan Collar has lost his mind. <laughs> so... <laughs> There may be something in that. I mean, uh, what's wrong with $9 trillion of housing stock in Australia, Alan? Uh, well, because high house prices do not create wealth, as I wrote in the article. They, they redistribute it. And what's go, what the problem with high house prices is that it's a, it's a massive engine of inequality. So it depends. And I think that the increase in house prices over the last 40 years, which is enormous and double what's occurred elsewhere in the rest of the world... Um, has changed Australian society um, for the worse. So it, it means that um, the, the creation of wealth, getting rich in Australia, getting ahead really financially, does not depend on your accomplishments, either getting a good education and then getting a good job and working hard. It depends on where you live, whether you live in Sydney and what sort of house you inherit. So we're all trust fund kids. You've just... You've just you just pigeonhole an entire generation of, of people as just trust fund kids. Well, I'm talking on average. There are obviously exceptions to this, um, of which I am one. And this, would you, you know, but but I'm because you never got a hand down, did you? You you you've made everything uh, for yourself. Yeah, my my parents had nothing, and I kind of um, got there through my own hard work. But yeah. um, but I'm 70. I mean, the, the, you know, I've got a. I, I was able to get in. Uh, more than 40 years ago into the housing market and I've done okay. Yeah. Um, but it's just my kids who are in their 30s mm. um, have no hope, really. But don't forget every battling migrant who scrounged together a deposit and bought a house 20, 30 years ago, they're now feeling a lot better and they now on paper are probably millionaires. That's and right. that's the great Australian dream. If they want to sell up and go back to Greece, they can probably buy half the village. So it's not just a, you know, the thing about no, our house prices is that you can cash in and your purchasing power with what you get around the world no, but, is magnificent. But you can't cash in unless you do go back to Greece and uh, buy a place in the village. But, what, but what's you the know, opposite you, you, of what you're saying? Are you saying we should be like Grozny, a war zone where house prices are, you know, nothing? I mean, at the end of the day, it's a reflection of the fact that people want to come and live in Australia, that we're a great, prosperous, successful society, and the migrants come in because they want to live here, and that bids up the price of, of the housing stock. That's no, a I'm big saying, driver of it. Uh, no, I'm saying that in the last 40 years, global house prices on average went up by 68%, and Australian house prices went up by 120% in real – this is both in real terms. In That's the, houses, in, not in actual, units, though, isn't it? That is dwellings. Dwellings overall, okay. Okay, and the nominal increase in Australian house prices over the 40 years is 950%. Now, uh, I'm saying that uh, it would have been better, it would be better, if Australian house prices went up by about the same as global house prices and Australian society would not have become distorted in the way that it has. Yeah. Well, I agree it's gone too far, but I do think there are positives. Like, our banks are so conservative in lending to small business, they usually take the small business owner's house as security. 
So a lot of small businesses are being financed by this housing bubble and keeping businesses afloat, keeping businesses financed. A lot of people are using their mortgages for cash flow financing effectively. So, you know, I, I don't think talk, that... Don't it, talk to me about banks. Bloody banks. I mean, they have become completely, because of the increase in house prices and everyone's reliance on huge mortgages, banks are now dominant. Well, they're you know, giant building Australian society, society Australian economy, Australia itself has become financialised yeah. um, uh, with banks completely dominant. Yeah. And, the, and the fact that the banks now demand... Um, uh, security over your, uh, over a small business person's house, I reckon, is terrible. Well, I agree. They should be selling based on the cash flows of the business, not demanding the blokes exactly. or the lady's house to be put on the line. That's but right. But also, I think it's a fair point to say that for all of Keating and everyone else in Labor saying, aren't we legends with compulsory super, the end of the day, after all the noise, all that's happened is we've got, what, $3 trillion in super and we've, we've mortgaged our houses by $3 trillion. So we used to save by paying off our houses and our mortgages and now we have record household debt and we've got $3 trillion in uh, super. And the reason the banks are worth four or $500 billion is they clip the ticket every which way. They clip the ticket on the super, they clip the ticket on the mortgages and has it really added any value overall? No. I agree. Uh, so how do we fix it, tax. How do we fix it? We death duties, which picks up a bit of a housing tax, and capital gains tax exemptions removed on the family property would be two good moves. Well, I think you've got to remove the tax incentives, uh, negative gearing and the capital yeah. gains tax discount, and you have to increase supply. I mean, yeah. a lot I, more I, affordable one of the, housing. One of the things I did in that article was to attack the um, Falinski inquiry into housing affordability because it was only focused on supply. Um, one side of the equation because it was a government thing and they don't want to talk about tax. Yeah. Um, on the tax taxation column the, that actually appeared this morning in the New Daily, the point was to attack the cap on tax in Australia uh, of 23.9% as an arbitrary and quite ludicrous cap uh, that's been imposed by the Coalition for political reasons. It's got nothing to do with uh, sense or economics. Yeah. Um, and they've just uh, they've just produced it to uh, attack the Labor Party, but the trouble is that the now we're stuck with 23.9%. And I was just pointing out that the World Happiness Report uh, came out this uh, last month, showing that the world's happiest country is Finland, with a tax to GDP ratio of 43.3%, um, and the top five happiest countries have an average tax-to-GDP ratio of 38.9%. Yeah, that's because they've got less happy billionaires and a much happier lower 40% of the community because they're cradle-to-grave welfare states and they look after their community exactly. top to bottom all the but way. But it is the case that in Finland the top marginal tax rate is 67% and the GST rate is 24% compared to 10% here. Yeah. And GST is incredibly regressive, so it's a very expensive place to live, but it you is. get covered for all your welfare every which way. And it seems that, just looking at the, the happiness report, the happiness of the citizens... They take more notice of how they're looked after than they do of their tax. Yeah. Well, I agree with that. And I think for the, for the failure of the world to adopt this as a model, I think you've got to blame the Americans who still have this libertarian, individualist, survival of the fittest, Darwinian approach to life, um, even the Democrats, and um, the fact they can't even introduce a decent Medicare properly. Um, I just think it's a disgrace. And I agree that we're probably about right, but you probably should increase the tax ratio to 30%. Well, I'm uh, just saying 23.9. Well, I mean, in fact, I'm saying that it has to be because otherwise we're in debt all the way. Well, no, all the pressures on spending. You know, that we've got the NDIS, we've got aged care now coming up, uh, childcare, 
yeah, and, with and money printing, spending. with money printing, Alan. Who cares anymore? I mean, we can just keep you know two eighty billion from ScoMo and Josh the last three years. It's changed the game entirely. I so didn't you, know you were a MMT, mate. I'm a Bill Mitchell. You're a uh, Bill Mitchell acolyte. I am. I'm a. You know, I'm going to send my kids to the University of Newcastle to study under him. I I agree with him and. Uh, uh, that lady who wrote well, the deficit myth. I tell you um, what. Next time I have lunch with Bill, I'll uh, invite you. I'll bring you along. Yeah. No, I, I agree. So I think, as I said to you before, I think that if Albo wants to win the election, which he's going to win anyway, but he should announce he's going to print sixty billion dollars and nationalise Transurban and cut the tolls that are killing motorists in Queen, in Brisbane, Sydney, and Melbourne. And the community would cheer him from the rooftops and, and the Liberals could not attack him because they printed $280 billion and just basically gave it to the banks by, you know, buying bonds. So if you're going to print, do it productively and nationalise a silly toll road company which is distorting urban infrastructure decision-making with their massively long-term concessions. Now, we should uh, move on to questions, Stephen. I agree. Of which we have a Many. few. I think we're going to need to introduce a word limit, Alan, like with AGMs online. You can yes, only please. do 2,000 characters. Everyone, please keep your uh, questions short. 200 and word, 100, 100 word limit, I think, from now on. Yeah. We're going to start brutally editing these, uh, dear listener. We are. Okay, Tom says, I was quite interested in your discussion about modern monetary theory, which we've just had one as well, again, in the recent past. I'm interested to know your views on if the theory is still relevant due to current inflation pressures or if the current global situation means the relevance of MMT had changed. What do you think? Well, I was very persuaded by Stephanie Kelton's book, The Deficit Myth, and her argument is that you can print until you've maxed out your productive resources. And I agree with that. And I don't think that... I think that money printing has contributed a little bit to inflation, but a lot of it has been, you know, zero interest rates, supply chain issues with uh, COVID and wars and that sort of stuff. And you can't blame all of the current global breakout of inflation on money printing. But obviously you can't do too much of it because then you do get inflation if you flood the market beyond the productive capacity of the economy. Um. My uh, my two bobs worth would be that Tom. I think that I do think that um, MMT gets more discussion when inflation is low than when inflation is high. Um, when inflation is high, people tend to shut up about MMT, um, which may be what you're talking about. And I do think uh, we'll see uh, MMT as inflation now goes up up. We'll see MMT discussion go into a recession. Yes. <laughs> But will the world stop printing? I mean, discussion <laughs> and printing are two different yes, well, things. Uh, well, the Americans are still printing like crazy, aren't they? Yeah, I know, but Lyle Brainard said, the Fed governor said this week, that they're now going to rapidly reduce their balance sheet yeah. at the Fed, and so the printing is uh, is out Yeah, now. but that's actually the, actual, the real measure here, is how much are the world's top ten printing currencies printing? And as I long as know. they're doing it, then MMT is still legitimate. When they all stop doing it, then you can say it's been officially retired. Yeah. Now, Tim's got three questions. We're going to knock out one of them and I'll go with his first one. And he here. says, sorry, it's probably a long, too long an email. Yeah, and you're well, right, right, Tim, it is too long. You're right. Now, Tim says he had an understanding that because the federal government's net debt is now about $700 billion, if the interest rates went up, that would make it harder for the government to repay the debt and therefore we have downward pressure on interest rates from this perspective. However, this theory only holds water if our national debt is at variable rates. So the question is, is our federal government net debt largely fixed or variable? Maybe the question is irrelevant if the debt is fixed and there is not long to go on the loan. So, yes, it's all fixed. Exactly. 
They issue bonds with a fixed term. But some the price three, some floats in the market. The, the market price floats, but not the government's price. Correct. So the government is the able government to issue a billion or two a week at the moment uh, at sub 3%. And if they do it for 20 years, they're paying 3% for 20 years. So a smart government right now would be borrowing as much long-term debt at sub 3% as possible because I can't see that continuing forever. Now, Tim's second crack. Obviously, the high, high oil price has an inflation impact. This and the fact that the local economy arguably is overinvested in itself, i.e. particularly residential housing. Are these the major upward interest rate press, pressures, housing prices and oil? Um, well, I don't think house prices are. I mean, the house prices are putting a bit of pressure up on rent, but... Um, house prices are not themselves in the CPI in Australia. No, uh, but should be. But oil, of course, is putting up a pressure on on um, uh, on inflation. Although that's been now been reduced by the by the removal of the excise. Half I took the excise. all three of our cars out this morning and filled up at a dollar sixty eight. So. Um someone's, on the, someone's, someone's on the roof of the car. Someone's cafe. on the roof. They're not going to fall through it, Alan. Christ. Goodness me. But, uh, yeah, so obviously petrol is a, is a big driver in CPI yeah. and uh, it was a great tax move to ease the burden um, and uh, brave government will put them up again in September. Yes. But, yeah, I think supply chain pressures, labour shortages, you know, these try and find a builder at the moment, you know, it's impossible. So, And the stupidest thing that, that Morrison did during the COVID pandemic was telling all the foreign students to go home and refusing to give them any job keeper or any support at all and saying go home. I mean, that was just ridiculous and we're still paying with the labour shortages and struggling universities who haven't got enough students to pay the pay the piper. Your Caitlin term says, with Caitlin. I would like to hear your input on the loyalty offering from Incanex, A-S-X-I-H-L, primarily the options and their status. Additionally, I'm confused as to why the costing an option too is high. Why would the benefit in exercising this over buying... What would be the benefit of exercising this over buying in the market? Okay, um, so in... Inconex is a medical marijuana stock hoping to assist with sleep apnea. So any company in medical marijuana is often open to colourful and interesting governance and capital manoeuvres. And this one is unusual, a one for 15 loyalty share at 35 cents. Now, the stock is currently at 49 cents. So the rational thing to do is to take up your loyalty option before it expires. Well, you get the loyalty option... No matter what you do, they just they just yeah. Post but it, it expires you. in two weeks, so it's a very short option. So basically, if you don't take them up in two weeks by April twenty two, it lapses and you miss out on the fourteen cent turn. So well, this is basically a capital raising where you're all being induced yeah, to but take up cheap stock. But they're but they're making it or they're incentivising you not to sell your shares immediately because by, there's a second round by giving you a top up or piggyback loyalty option where you get two loyal, two additional options for every one of your original options which expires in a year from now in April 2023. So the rational a, thing to do... But the exercise price on that is a dollar. a dollar. Yeah, that's and right. And that's what Caitlin's on about, saying why is it a dollar? Well, the stock was 70 cents last month. So, it, you know, it's a bit like Investmart. You know, it might go from 10 cents to a buck if you're going well. So they're basically saying, you know, this is a speculative startup, um, could go to a buck, take up these options and stick with us and, you never know, you might get a cherry on top when the stock bursts through a dollar in 12 months from now. But I like loyalty schemes like this. I mean, Macquarie basically runs the best loyalty scheme in the country where they retain the bonuses of their top executives for seven years. 
So you have to stay loyal for seven years before you get all your bonus. It's very expensive to leave. A few other companies do it, like Mirabuka currently is doing a, a share purchase plan, which I've participated in. It's priced at a fifty percent, a ten percent discount to VWAP, but you only get fifty volume weighted average price. Weighted average price, but you only get fifty percent of the final dividend. So it comes on with a special code, and it trades very thinly because you can't sell with the ordinary shares. You've got this special code, and it always trades at a big discount. So effectively, you've got a loyalty incentive to not dump your new SPP shares until it becomes a regular stock after it goes ex-dividend in August. So that is another form of loyalty payment where you basically get a financial disincentive to sell. And effectively, the capital gains tax system where you get a 50% discount if you hang on for 12 months, that effectively is a loyalty incentive through the tax scheme. Anything which encourages long-termism, I think is probably a good thing in capital markets because too many traders out there just doing it on the fly. So well done to... So I just, on the subject of medicinal marijuana, I just wanted to mention that the, my local chemist in Hawthorne, 50% of their revenue is now medicinal cannabis. I find that Sounds amazing. Sounds like a that bubble. Is, Surely that a, not. That is amazing. Does that mean Chemist Warehouse is selling hundreds of millions of medicinal? Well, this is not Chemist Warehouse. No, but it's Terry White, but still. Is it, is it wealthy this, retirees so I don't in know Josh Frydenberg's seat are particularly open to marijuana no, 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 they're just they're, they're, It is really a thing. 50% of, 50% their, of, their, of their revenue. Dispensed, dispensed revenue or overall revenue? Overall revenue is medicinal oh, I want to cannabis. Check that. I'd love to see what the mark chemist warehouse. What's the even number? if it's a co- even if that's that's twice what the you reality is. Sure, they're not is. like Diageo's sort of buying up everything and shipping it well, off I'd to China know, because it's this, not I'd legal look. in China. Might be a bit of that going on. Oh, I don't know. I mean, look, I, I heard uh, I heard it on the grapevine, and then put it. To, I said to them, <laughs> "I heard this. Is this true?" I'm going to head down and try and buy some after we finish up today. No, you have to get a you have to get a prescription. So I try. This is because I tried to get a prescription, or I tried to get some right because I've got some chronic pain. And um, uh, and it turns out you can only get it if you've got a pre-existing prescription for pain relief. Not mm, okay. not that you're taking paracetamol, but you have to be taking a prescription pain relief, which is mostly opioids. So basically, and this is a government rule. This is not. Mm. So these limitations is, from so the, the government, government obviously working really well. If one chemist has fifty percent of their total revenue on medical well, marijuana. Well, it's amazing, you know. And the deal is that. The government says you can only get medicinal mar- marijuana for pain if you, basically, if you're taking an opioid already. Well, I don't want to take a bloody opioid no. as a precursor to No, you just want to get straight onto the good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it seems to be the reverse of, you know, drugs yeah. that where you go from um, well, reckon, marijuana to opi- opioids. Well, I reckon this is the hot tip today where we're going to talk hydrogen later. But I reckon actually the best stock tip today is uh, medicinal marijuana based on the Hawthorne uh, pharmacy uh, sales figures that we've got uh, hot off the press here today. Well, look, we're starting to run out of time, Stephen, so we might need to just simply cut out a couple of questions. Yeah, I might just go to James first, though. Um, James is saying, great podcast, always enjoy the clarity of explanations. I've recently sold a property and have 500000 to invest. I'm retired from work and have an annual 6.5% drawdown from my industry super fund. I've yet to decide how to reinvest the 500 i I'm in my 70s and I have no debt. What are the options? ETFs, managed funds, reduce my super to 2.5%. James, I actually think you should reduce your super withdrawals from 65 to 2.5 if you're in an industry fund and their returns are generally pretty good and well diversified. So if you don't need to take the money out of your super, 
don't take it out. I only take the minimum out. And then I'd probably wait for a correction in the market and a 10% correction and buy a few more shares or just go with the standard internally managed LICs such as AFIC or Argo rather than uh, Magellan or the Wilson Stable which have their excessive management fees going to third parties. But uh, bank hybrids are pretty solid. ETFs, yeah. So we're not giving any financial advice though, Alan, are we? We are not. And in fact, I think we... Uh, A few of our questions today are really personal advice. They're asking for personal advice, giving us all their details, and James was one of those. And I think we're just not going to... We can't answer them. So if you you want personal advice, everybody, can I just uh, suggest you ask it in a general way? Don't tell us your personal details, because as soon as we read your personal details, we are effectively giving personal advice and it's not that we don't want to we'd love to tell you exactly what to do with your life um uh, because we're like that but um uh, we're not allowed to no. we're getting into trouble no i mean big brother Asics going to come gonna, chasing us well, yeah so, we're getting in uh, trouble and you know, you know no one from no one from babcock and brown went to jail after 10 billion disappeared but so we can't i think we're giving financial I advice i think we should do one more qu- uh, question uh, which is the hydrogen one well let's just first do What's your opinion if Labor gets in about taxes? I think that's quite interesting. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, Paul asked that one, and all they're going to do is a multinational crackdown, whatever that means. Fuel excise will go up by 22 cents a litre. Well, what it means, actually, just to, just to, in, in, to interrupt you there, um, the, the one thing that is going to happen, uh, which I think will happen, whoever wins the election, is that 15% minimum tax on corporations, multinational corporations have to pay a minimum 15% tax, um, which... Uh, Labor Party expects will uh, raise somewhere between three and four billion dollars mm. in Australia. So it's not, you know, it's, it's not the solution to all of our problems. It's a very it's easy populist thing to do. I mean, it is making Australia a less attractive destination for international. No, no, capital. this is what everyone's doing. This I know is they're all OECD doing it, but this is, yeah. everyone's putting this fifteen percent. Every on. single budget, there seems to be a crackdown on foreign executives living on the harbour. Yeah, right, that's Multinationals. Right. I mean, it's just, absolutely. It's just, and it they obviously throw... was incredibly rorted ten years ago. Uh, if they're uh, still fixing it after ten uh, different iterations uh, of crackdowns, for the purposes of which. They throw an extra $100 million at the ATO yeah, so they right. can employ a whole lot of people to do it. And the ATO says, oh, thanks very much. Yeah. Expands now more. Yeah. So we'll just read out Philip's question. Yes. Uh, I'll do it. Um, uh, I was hoping you could speak to the prospect of investing in the hydrogen sector in Australia at present. Uh, Australia seems uniquely positioned to capitalise on the transition to net zero with our abundance of sources of renewable energy on top of the government support. Well, um, we, we, we aren't why aren't the limited number of pure hydrogen play companies listed on the ASX seeing the corresponding lift that the lithium sector is going through? I understand FFI and Twiggy, that's Fortescue Future Industries, and Twiggy have Twiggy Forest have dominated the talk in the hydrogen space, but any insight you can offer into the broader investment opportunities would be appreciated. GEV, PRL and AZHZR are three companies that I'm invested in, but we'd love to hear your thoughts on any other companies of interest. Well, I've got to say, Phil, you're very brave being in those three because I've had a look at all three of them. They're all small mining outfits based in Perth, which in my mind always sends up the warning signs. But the Global Energy Ventures, which is GEV, it's about to change its name to Provaris Energy. And um, they've got uh, the market cap 60 million. The shares peaked at 45 cents in 2018, but are now down to 10 cents. And they've got accumulated losses of 69 million. 
but they only claim to have net assets of 20 million and the market cap is 60. So there's some value there. Their chair is the former AGL CEO, Greg Martin. So you're always looking for a credible board. And their play is compressed hydrogen starting at the Tiwi Islands and then shipping it to Asian well, markets. That's right. So they're, they're actually a transport company. Yeah. They're yeah. proposing to transport compressed yeah. hydrogen. Correct. And, Correct. Uh, and that could be a business. They're a long yeah. way off actually doing it. Very expensive building ships, though. I mean, uh, all these things are startups with massively capital heavy proposals. <coughs> yeah. So someone's going to have to take like, them out of it. PRL, which is province, they've got a possible hydrogen. Uh, hydrogen plant going up in Carnarvon. Yes. Which, I don't know, maybe. Yeah, but they've got accumulated losses of 28 million. They claim to have net equity of 25, but the market cap's 115 because they won't go on from 2 cents to 20 cents and back to 9 cents. So, so far, they've created value when you look at accumulated losses, claim net equity and market cap. So, if you got in early enough, they've, they've delivered. So, the market is pricing some upside there. And Hazer Group, They've gone from $0.37 cents to $1.80 and back to $1 since July 2020. They've got $46 million of accumulated losses, but at least they've got $28 million in cash, and they only claim the total equity on their balance sheet is $14 million. But again, the market cap's $168 million, and they've received $9 million in arena funding for their Hazer demonstration plant on hydrogen technology. So they're, I think, into conversion of some, some form. So all of them are priced, they've all created value based on the upside that Phil is talking about. But I don't know if any of them are ever going to actually deliver massively because you need capital to do this. Well, Philip, uh, Philip's a bit great. He wants more. He's, he's invested in those three. He's in the he's only three tiddlers us. we can find. He's asking for more. I mean, he's, he's the expert, obviously. Well, do you know any more? No, well, I, all I know is Twiggy. And uh, and I just think Twiggy is mad with what he's doing with the FFI headed by Guy to Bell. And I just hope that the Fortescue board has the numbers to stop Twiggy from wasting billions. That's my biggest fear. He's, he's got, got a great the, iron Guy ore cash He's got the business. former Deputy Governor of the Reserve Bank yeah, keeping he, an eye on his money. He's worth $23 billion. He should sell 5% of his Fortescue shares and set up a startup. He should not be polluting or confusing the iron ore China story with some green hydrogen play, which is not particularly related to it at all. And he's flying around the world, you know, spruiking like, like you know, Fortescue's having to put out correction statements on the ASX because he's overhyping it and... Well, so Stephen, I, I think I think you should ask a question at the Fortescue annual look, meeting, preceded I, by the preceded by the words, uh, "Mr. Forrest is mad." That was my favourite two years ago. Um, Twiggy was in Paraguay, and he d- dialed into the ATM, and I was in Templestow in Manningham, and I got twenty questions in, and he hated it because he just wanted to spruik the whole time. So last year's AGM. Physical meeting in Perth with no webcast. So, oh, that <laughs> that's so? so Twiggy <laughs> shut down the online questions because he hated it. So uh, they often do that when you hit them too hard. They well, just shut down the next I think year. that's evidence that he's not quite mad. No, he's probably quite sensible doing that. But uh, I don't think anyone's going to make any money out of his FFI. But good on him for having a go, I'd say, from a green point of view. Okay, well, that's it. Now, listen, a reminder, please, we love your questions, uh, as perhaps you can tell. But uh, please keep them short. And also... Uh, keep the uh, uh, try to keep out the personal details and yeah. asking us to give you personal advice. We kind of don't. We'd love to, but we can't. 
Uh, so if you want to know something that's to do with your own personal situation, just ask it in general, in a general way, uh, and we'll It's like at an best. ATM, they always say, you know, West Farmers, if you'd like to talk about Bunnings, just please see the customer service booth over there. <laughs> this is a shareholder big picture meeting. So Yeah, that's right. So we're, we're big picture. Yeah, helicopter view. So thanks for listening, everyone. Um, James Thompson will be back next week in uh, The Money Cafe. Send in your questions to themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. Until next week, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report. And I'm troublemaker Stephen Main, and we'll see you in a fortnight. This has been The The Money Money Cafe. Cafe. (laughs) 